0: Hey team, you can probably tell that I am new to podcasting and far from being a professional. I've been using Anchor to distribute my episodes from almost any audio platform such as Apple and Spotify. It is so simple, you can record from even your phone or computer and immediately upload it. If you have something to share with the world, do it. If you were afraid of it being too complicated, try Anchor. At this moment, I am in my closet, hiding from my toddler, and I don't have much time. Anchor makes it quick and easy. You have so much to contribute to the podcasting world, so get started. Try Anchor. If I can do it, you will have no problem. You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. In the ICU world, there is a new emphasis on ICU rehabilitation, which is extremely important because really no one is going to leave the ICU at their baseline functional status. Yet, I hope this podcast also brings our attention to preservation. How different would rehabilitation needs be, or even simply survival, if preservation of the muscular system was just as important as any other organ? Last episode, we talked about how muscular atrophy contributes to the inflammatory process. We need to be keenly aware of ways to preserve muscle mass and function starting the moment patients come to us. This should be just as important as any other bundle. Mobility, should be just as important as any antibiotic that we give. And this podcast is focused a lot on early mobility or better titled prompt walking. Yet the picture would not be complete without diving also into nutrition. They go hand in hand and it is just as important. So Yaron is back with us to continue to fill in the gaps. Hey, Ron, thanks so much for coming back and teaching us more Today we're gonna to talk about nutrition. So, Heron, tell us why nutrition is so important during critical illness.
1: Good question. I think it's nutrition and, and as always, I kind of think it, I think that's not been very well understood in the uh, intensive critical care world because think people think that that they don't need a nutrition in the first, very, very first acute phase. And I think that's partly due that we do not have or we did not have the ability to assess it very well what the nutritional status was. We have, of course, creatine levels and other stuff, but that's very hard to assess in good ill patients because there are other confounding factors surrounding it. We don't have very well-defined metabolic profile, which, which give more rise to a nutritional status. What we do know is that if you do not feed a patient very well, specifically in the second and third week and on, that the, the outcomes required to length of stay, length of ventilator, all increases. But there is a very well-defined kind of malnutrition risk, which can be, I think, somehow overcome where people already have tube feeds. So how can you make a very well-tailored tube feed based on the patient being admitted to the ICU? Which, as of now, I think in most hospitals in the US is purely based on BMI and, 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 and potentially age and gender. Which, if you really go down more in depth in how that specific define the, the BMI or, or that weight is being defined was just people ask to a next of skin or, or what the specific weight was before they were admitted in the ICU. So that's a very weird kind of way of looking at weight because the weight is again a very, upon, upon admission going through the whole ICU stay can change overall based on just over fluid loads and other stuff, which doesn't really give a good insight in their overall lean body mass, muscle mass, uh, fat mass, and maybe a potential whole body water. So you have to assess patients how that change from a body composition point of view on a day-by-day period, and also again combine that with what are the particularly nutritional needs on the specific day during the ICU stay. So the only way to assess that very well is we have a lot of equations which can make which can define the resting energy expenditure people have. So you can have a kind of derivative of how many calories they're going to need for the specific day, again, based on weight and gender and age. But that doesn't give us the whole story. And we just put out a, an article that's going to be submitted where we try to show that using specific equations in the ICU, but in, in COVID patients, that when you look at equations, and then again, compare it with the golden standard, that it is index kilometry, metabolic carb measurements, where you're measuring a patient from the ventilator, when you're measuring VO2 and VCO2 from the patient, which then calculates for you the, the real resting energy expenditure value of the patient on that specific time, you see that doesn't match up. So overall, we tend to overestimate and or underestimate patients based on the nutritional need. And over and underestimate is based on the on specific phase they're going through. We put in an article, maybe I can send you also a link where you can put it in the podcast, in our in our COVID patients that we saw that the first week they kind of were kind of normal metabolic, So they had their normal metabolic needs, not very different from our normal patients we saw in the ICU. But moving on from the second and the third and the fourth week, we saw a very high increase in metabolic metabolic rate. And that metabolic rate increase was different between the people who were being obese or being non-obese. When you were obese, you see a very well increase upon, I think, around the, uh, the third and the fourth week. And then you see a decrease again. And that increase can be almost 200% predicted. So you can have a patient being prone to having a BMI larger than 30, being paralyzed, still having a energy expenditure overall or more than 3,000 calories a day. If Why we, is that?
0: What's contributing to that?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. That's still one of the things we're looking into right now. There are, I think there is not one single answer to that one. I think there are different kind of phenotypes in those patients who are having a heart re in the ICU. If you have a more, again, I think in my, in, my, in my former podcast, I said to you that the VO2 is being derived from cardiac output and evative. So the potential of the tissue to, to utilize oxygen in the peripheral tissue, like muscle, like the gut, like the, the kidney and the brain, and of course also the heart. There is a kind of tendency that someone has a very high cardiac output and then a very low... Ability to utilize oxygen, extract oxygen in the peripheral tissue, or the other way around. And you can ask yourself, why do you see a very high cardiac output? And that high cardiac output can be for for the listeners that that, that know these numbers. They have a cardiac index of 9.1, 9.2. So that's almost 25 liters or 30 liters per minute. Those are numbers which you normally see in, call it healthy volunteers, just running up in a very high intense kind of exercise. They do that in a 24-7 being prone, being sedated, paralyzed, and on the vent. So you can imagine it's a very high, again, a very high thing on the heart itself. And one of the uh, hypothesis we're having is that the inability to extra oxygen from peripheral tissue can only be overcome when you have a higher flow. So there is still a need. There is a demand for more oxygen because you're in an inflammatory state, so your lymphocytes, you've got everything needs more oxygen to extract from, but if you have a less oxygen, so your mitochondrial is not that very, it's very poorly functioning. Only way even, to get it around is more, more, perfusion, more And blood on top of it, you
0: mentioned important. last episode that propofol inhibits the mitochondrial function, right? So we okay, have these COVID patients on very high doses of propofol. So even less function. And that causes, yes. what were you saying?
1: That, that, that causes literally, I think, already a kind of a potential strain on the heart. Because if you have mitochondrial dysfunction, so impairment of oxygen extraction from the peripheral tissue, the only way to compensate the demand that the system is having is higher flow. And the higher flow in the system can only be done. So you're already giving a higher, kind of a weird kind of circle we're living in. So the medication you give to be sedated is also the medication that can rise to this specific phenotype. Again, and that is the question we're trying to answer. not for everyone. Not everyone responds that, this way to propofol. So we're trying to figure it out. Which one does? Is it specifically for a very well-defined, very well-defined patient group in the ICU or the icu white weakness population? Is that a population that shows this specific kind of phenotype? We did saw specifics in our COVID population like fasciculations, so these are kind of a low motor neuron disease, which also give part to a higher perfusion of the specific muscle. So, and again, this is all specific COVID. And I'm talking about COVID because it it, it shows such a very dramatic difference than our called our classical RDS patient or our classical sepsis patient, which shows that multi organs are being right now being impaired, not only the, the lung or the pulmonary system.
0: So have you studied Normal ARDS patients or other patients in different phases of critical illness, and how does that compare to these COVID patients as far as how their nutritional needs change?
1: Um, yes, we, we have in depth, of course, in our COVID in the COVID population, which which showed a very, very well-defined hypermetabolic phase, which we have not seen yet in our classical RDS and our classical sepsis patients. We still trying to find out what was the reason why there is such a specific hypermetabolic phase because we saw in the first week kind of a normalized metabolic rate based on their normal equations, based on the reference values. And in the second and the third and the fourth week, depending on being obese, yes or no, yes or not, we saw an increase till 200% and up. So that's a very high number, which which shows that there is a, increased metabolic need you can ask yourselves why is there a increased metabolic need in the second and third and fourth week upon your ICU stay even if you are being sedated paralyzed prone and ventilated which you think that the system itself should be completely down so why is there such a high need I think there are different kind of scenarios and kind of storytelling over here I think is there is not just one silver bullet that tells the whole story what we saw was now again, if you have a high BMI, you have a different metabolic phenotype, a different metabolic rate in the second, third and the fourth week than when you're having a normal BMI, so around 125 or 30 and lower, 125, which what we saw was the highest were the obese. They had in the third and the fourth week around 200 percent of their predicted metabolic needs. So again, you're looking at numbers that are around 3,500 calories a day. Those are huge numbers. If we just try to seek to to, do, to define it or compare it with our normal healthy volunteer, if if you compare it with us, if you want to have a total caloric need or a calorie burned a day for three thousand five hundred, we have to do some major work. We have to have a specific imagine. If you are able to burn thousand calories in a, and normally you have. 2000 for just for one day you have to do some serious some serious work to get that done there's two hours on a big on hike on the gym on the bike and all that stuff so imagine again a patient COVID intubated sedated paralyzed prone and ventilated has the same number and if you got a little bit more in depth in that patient then we're seeing that the big difference we're seeing in those patient is the how the amount of cardiac output, stroke volume, and heart rate is defined versus their ability or inability to, uh, to extract oxygen from the peripheral tissue. So we have patients who had normal extraction values, who had normal cardiac outputs, or other way on, that normal cardiac outputs with very high extraction values and still came up with a very high VO2. That's a kind of a number of what you want to see, because then you see there is an hyper- hypermetabolic phase going on Something in the system is using more energy like just the immune system because you're having an inflammatory phase. But on the way around, it's kind of weird. When you have a low extraction value and a very high cardiac output, which then, because it's being multiplied, shows a very high VO2, which combined with VCO2 gives a high resting energy expenditure outcome, gives rise to a phenotype that is being laid down and the only way for the system to compensate for that less extraction is more flow in the system. And the more flow in the system is just gaining in your stroke volume or heart rate and increasing your cardiac output. And that's kind of the story that we're telling right now. And also for my my colleagues at Duke Heart, and we do a lot of stuff in the cath lab, that we're seeing is the heart is a kind of a weird kind of organ. I would potentially see them that the heart is just a slave of the cell it only strikes and responds to differences from a cellular level in a peripheral tissue so if there is an extraction problem in the tissue only way for the heart to compensate that is in higher flow mm-hmm. try to somehow compensate for the high demand that there still is again and we, we talked about it before in, the, in our first episode that one of the specific things that we see in our patients that have very high adverse effects and motor organ failures is that they have the inability to, to utilize fats very well. And that was mainly what we're talking about, the skeletal muscle. But that's again, that's not the whole story. Mitochondria are all over the place. There are in our lymphocytes, there are in our kidneys, there are in our gut, they are in our brain, but also in our hearts. And the heart muscle itself, the cardiomyocytes, is a very weird kind of muscle because it's one of the muscles that is most adaptive to changes it's a muscle that's kind of a garbage muscle it if you throw lactate to it it lost lactate if you throw ketones to it it loves ketones it can mm-hmm. utilize everything what it wants because from a evolutionary perspective that's kind of straightforward because that's a very that's an, it is it is the organ that shows perfusion that is the demanding organ for perfusion so you have to be sure next to the brain, that the brain is being perfused. So make sure that that system is always working, no matter what. Mm-hmm. But if you have patients who have these kind of issues, they also have an ability to utilize fats in their hearts. They have an ability to utilize lactates in their hearts and ketones in their hearts. And that in turn gives rise to a heart failure. So the inability to have a more rigid heart or more a fatigued heart in a sense that it cannot cope with the demand is getting. And you're still having patients that is a high strain on the heart, but the heart cannot cope because there is a flow demand because there's a high VO2 demand based on the inflammation state, but the heart is still impaired. And somehow you get compensation, you get decomposition throughout their stay. And we now know that one of the major complications you're gonna have in the ICU is multi-organ failure. And the multi-organ failure is kind of a, kind of a safety way of the system to make sure again, from an evolutionary perspective that the brain and the heart always is being perfused. So if you have issues with perfusing a system, make sure that you just close systems off to make sure that the higher demand systems are still be able to be perfused. And then making the whole circle back again to, to well, why is nutrition so important is that nutrition is one of the micronutrients that that you can somehow treat the system with because there is still a demand in that high inflammatory state. Because there is a demand of CO2. The only way to give CO2 to the system is to utilize it with substrates like the lipids and the carbohydrates again. So you have to make sure, and I'm not talking about protein at all still, because there's that, a, a third step. Protein is also a source of to be utilized as a as an energy on an energy level. But those are also building blocks for the system to make sure that your protein build up is also being there. Because you're trying one of the easiest thing for the muscle or for the system to use as muscle is the amino acid pool. Because the muscle in rest is just amino acid pool for the system to be used for energy. That's the reason why you get wasted. And somehow we just don't know is that even if you get, and that, that is again, looking to the to look back again, amino acid is very easy for the system to, to use. So if you have an impairment of utilization of, of lipids, then you are far more, li, far more easily being pushed to your protein, to your muscle protein, which in turn get muscle wasting. And then we have the third circle with the myokines. You are not able to secret myokines anymore because the muscle is a very high metabolic profile organ, which talks with all kinds of other organs like the brain, like the gut and and the kidney, which they don't talk anymore. And then you have kind of a constant looping, which ends up with multi organ failure in the end.
0: So in the context of ensuring that patients maintain functionality, so that they're able to maintain muscle mass, if we don't give them the right kind of nutrition, they're going to get, it contributes to the multi-organ dysfunction, right?
1: Right. Yeah. If, you know, the, the, I think if, you, if you're going to see, and of course, one of the cool stuff you're showing already that, that we are able to mobilize patients very early on, even with, on, on the vent. If you're looking at how would you define what is needed from a muscle perspective on the muscle level, cellular level, which will trigger the system in building muscle, you have two specific triggers. One is just the building blocks itself, like protein, amino acids. And the second one is the most important one. You have to have an anabolic trigger. System needs to be triggered to make the system anabolic. And the reason the trigger for being for being anabolic is exercise. Exercise is a trigger of the muscle when, when you're when you doing exercise and then putting on the, the protein on top. That is a trigger for the system to build muscle protein. If you and only preserve it, it, correct. And preserve it, right? And maintain it. Yeah. You cannot do with just one. You cannot do just only exercise and you cannot do only protein because that's will not work. You have building blocks, but you have no people who can build it. And you can, of course, have a trigger for anabolic. When you have not the building blocks, you cannot build anything.
0: It's all so fascinating to me because we talk a lot about personalizing and optimizing care for each patient and their individual needs. So doing mobility as far as what they can tolerate, what they're able to do, as quick as they can do it. But I'm feeling silly that I hadn't discussed nutrition more promptly because apparently this is a really big deal.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And so when patients don't have, well, first of all, when do you recommend starting nutrition? Because I think sometimes patients can sit in ICUs for days without getting nutrition started. One of the first things that we, we do in the wake and walk in ICU is we drop the feeding tube. As soon as someone's intubated or even often on high flow and we start nutrition, but what would you recommend from a nutrition standpoint as far as promptly starting? Yeah, there are,
1: there are, there are, there are two, two, I think two very, very important points you mentioned, here, point you mentioned here. One of the points is another thing. That's the constant frustration that dietitians have. And also I'm seeing when people going from the ICU to the floor is that people tend to think that their tube feed is not being necessary again if they have any potential in eating themselves. There is a large study done is the starvation trial in the just after the second world war here in in the US where a specific population of people that were healthy volunteers that were giving up to say what starvation does to your system and never being starved I think around I'm not sure except the numbers I think even not that not that low but around a thousand kilograms for three months and see how that specific phenotype and then the and then they are, are again at three months they are going to eat again and they looked up what is the nutritional needs to get their normal metabolic and the muscle health back again before they get their starvation for three months they needed around more than the double of the need for a year to come back to the same what they were three months before so they so needed so twice as much needs, food for a year very high you can never ever eat that you cannot wow. ask for a patient on the floor just getting off the ICU who's able to eat in half of a potato to think, oh, right, we're, we're there because yeah. you can eat. No, never, ever. Maybe even maybe even in a home kind of environment, you start to have some tube feeding. Well,
0: now that that's, makes me think about how quickly I've had feeding tubes removed on patients after they're extubated. And once they pass the swallow eval. how quickly we remove it because no one wants a feeding tube. It's so uncomfortable it's annoying and it's a sign of progress so you're excited to get it out for them you want them to feel free
1: absolutely i i would definitely advocate it to keep it there and kind of the kind of cool thing what you can do with it you can give Uh bolus. so if you're looking at athletes there is a kind of an anabolic window when you're doing your mobilization where the muscle is the most sensitive in gaining muscle protein synthesis and that's just after your exercise, 45 okay. minutes hour after your exercise. If you then give them a specific high-protein bolus, that is the reason why the muscle is triggered and being anabolic triggered in gaining muscle mass. So have make 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 make, make that that window work for you in using the specific bolus feeding because. Again, going back to the nutrition to the tube feeds, it's kind of weird that people are doing 24-hour dripple into your stomach of feeds. It's ridiculous. Well, because-
0: and we talked about this before. We love our jejunal tubes. Yeah. That makes us feel better, like they're not going to aspirate. So, how safe is it to feed patients, especially when they're prone gastrically?
1: Yeah. What have that studies is, shown? There is no also a good question. I think that's also one of the kind of the paradigms still that needs to be needs to be needs to be very well cleared up. I, right now, there is no evidence that you have stomach issues or high secretion or a no. Not at all. No aspiration. No aspiration at all. Because the thing is, and that's, when you're looking at how the stomach works, also, again, from an exercise perspective, the stomach works, the stomach emptying works, not with droplets. Emptying works when you have a 200 mils coming to your stomach. Trigger. That's a trigger for the stomach to be to emptying. It. When, you, when you do a droplet, then you get more patient. gastroparesis. Well, yeah, yeah. And
0: what about patients with GERD or undiagnosed sphincter problems?
1: Yeah, good question. I think we. I think it sometimes you just have to see how it works, and maybe you can. Of course, the bolus is also. You can go from fifty mils to two hundred mils. It's it's up to you and to see how it goes. So maybe you can have a kind of a graded kind of bolus. look how to how to look how it goes as for now there are there is not clear evidence that that it shows being having adverse effects at all there's a big study i think done right now in the uk by daniel beer from the ccpsd and the dietitian psd and she showed already that there is no issue at all in doing a bolus and i think right now is are only looking at safety from bolus perspective i the second step will be how can you integrate bolus feeding with mobilization and again going back to my first slogan is you have to treat your patients like athletes, right? So how can we somehow combine nutritional knowledge and mobilization knowledge or exercise knowledge and training knowledge from a PT together and then making sure you have the building blocks, that's for the nutrition, and you have the anabolic trigger, that's for the PT and the nurse to go. And, and how much would that change outcomes? I think it would change immensely, immensely, yeah.
0: What do we know about malnutrition in the icu and how that impacts outcomes when we are delayed feeding patients we don't feed them enough we feed them too much how does that impact
1: we just the thing is right now there we were i think the it's not coming coming more and more in, in the science that we see because we were not able there were not large trials able to use the metabolic cards which we then show what what's really there what, what is the real need of a patient. Right there at Duke, we are we're having a couple of trials running in the COVID and we are studying also a clinical service using metabolic cards. And then you see, because if you only use your equations, you don't know. You have no clue if you're using the, the right numbers because you have no reference value where you can compare it with, right? So, and now we're seeing that we don't doing a job at all because our equation doesn't match up anyway. And you can ask yourself, okay, okay, but 500 calories plus or minus, what does that to the system? If I give somebody 1,500 or 2,000, what does it matter? I think it matters a lot, mainly if you're overfeeding patients. Underfeeding is, of course, from a muscle wasting perspective, an issue. Overfeeding is an issue just based on your, your CO2. If you have a larger CO2 breathe out, you have a larger driven CO2 ventilation. So from a ventilatory perspective, that's not good because you're mm-hmm. having a very high respiratory drive. Right. Which you don't want to have a patient who already having specific issues with diaphragmatic dysfunction of all stuff. You want to make sure there is no very high respiratory drive over there. So you have to keep the C2 levels low because they also have not the ability to, to force the C2 out through their breath, right? So there is, there is a definitely a need in not underfeeding, not overfeeding a patient. But part of outcomes, I think the only way to, to really look into it is that there are now new devices coming into the market that are very easy to be used and be, can be used sideways to the ventilator. And those numbers coming out right now, and that shows that that we're not doing a very good job at all using the equations. Uh, and again, We're not
0: doing a good job using the equations, or the equations aren't appropriate for our patients.
1: uh Sorry, yeah, the equations are inappropriate right now. They are not very appropriate for the ICU space. There are some that are matching up a little bit, but again, one of the things you cannot use or cannot utilize or cannot come up with the equations is the number of RQ or the RER number. That's the equation number. That's the number that is a ratio between your V2 and VCO2, and that's a kind of a proxy of your, your substrate usage. So if you have larger than 0.85, then you are more in the carbohydrates, or you're smaller than 0.8, then you're more in the lipids and more in the protein kind of usage. So that gives rise. And that is one of the stuff, one of the articles right now we are submitting that, that the RER number is also predictive in length of stay. So mm. if you are admission or your first measurement after your intubation, is already predictive in your outcome. Wow. So if you have, if the first day of intubation and you show a high RER number, so you show a very high carbohydrate utilization number, or you show a low number, more lipids, then in the first step, you're more willing, you're having a lower length of stay. It's kind of a weird thing because in our peer space, it's the other way around. So if you're not in the ICU, it's the other way around. When you have a low RER number, so you have a high ability to utilize fats in rest, that's a good thing. In the ICU, first day after ventilation, that's a different story. Because what we're seeing is one of the first things that happens is insulin resistance. And insulin resistance goes instantly that they have an inability to utilize carbohydrates. If you can overcome that resistance, you can still utilize carbohydrates and your glycogen very well. So that makes a high RER number. And that shows a very more more efficient kind of metabolic profile. You're able to switch very easily to carbohydrates. And maybe... You
0: you mentioned last episode that propofol contributes to insulin resistance.
1: Yeah. As well as mitochondrial dysfunction. from, From a mitochondrial function perspective, that's one way, but also the lipids.
0: So when we have patients on high dose of propofol or any propofol period how could that impact their nutritional needs?
1: That's, we're seeing that there is a potential, what we're seeing is there is a shift in substrates. So you see an inability to utilize fats anymore. But it's kind of weird because propofol is also built on lipids. So you're also feeding them with lipids somewhere. It's not a feeding what you're giving, but it's just the intermediary where, where propofol is being built on. But also you have a issue that for mitochondrial level, the respiration is just lower. So you have a lower ability to extract oxygen from a mitochondrial level. So, and again, we are just standing off to see that how that somehow evolves because it's not in everyone. Right. And, and there is some specific, and there's always the hardest part doing clinical research in the ICU space is that in our RDS, sepsis and COVID patients, we do not have any reference values of them before. We're seeing them upon admission that's that's our first potential measurement and oftentimes come
0: malnourished at baseline
1: yeah yeah there's a lot of stuff which you just don't know if we have and that's that's, that's the stuff we're doing right now it's more easy if you have a are you in a icu or you have the surgery ICU when you have patients that are already being have an elective surgery so you already have potential assessment before the surgery then you have comparison data sets. We're still looking in our trauma surgery patients because those are numbers. Our, they have traumas from, from, from car crashes or from, from gunshots. Then we have patients who are very young, which we know they, they should have, have a very or not very bad metabolic profile, right? So then we can follow them up in the ICU and see how that, how that goes. But that are very specific those are from gunshots, open belly victims. So they are having open belly in the ICU. That's a whole other story because you have issues with the dynamics and the fluid dynamics in the, in the, in the stomach that give rise to all different kinds of variables. But still, again, we have to have a better understanding in how metabolic profiling is changing over time in each specific population in the ICU and driven on that specific outcomes, driven their metabolic needs, nutritional needs, and the ability or inability to exercise because I think you can always exercise, but the next question will be can we can we tailor exercise? Mm-hmm. Is it just walking? should we walk and rest and walk? There's another kind of pro- pro- protocols you can you can you can think about and how should we tailor this? What is the outcome where we can see this specific patient is more responsive to training nutrition than this one is Can you Talk about, we know in the, in the event world, we have overreaching and overtraining. Can you do, from an autonomic perspective, in a patient who has a very poor autonomic function, if you're already in the ICU, how much can you stress a patient out? And can we define how much you can stress a patient out? Is it intensity? Is it volume? Or is it combined? Is it rest or non-rest? So there's a lot of stuff which we're already knew already using in our athletes, which someone has to come back to our patients, but that still has to be driven by objective measurements and mainly by non-invasive ones using sensor data. And that's what we're doing right now. We have a lot of sensor data here, which we can measuring uh, perfusion, we can measuring oxidation profile of patients in rest and also doing exercises and all. So we're trying to have a far better insight in not only as a number, when we do an index calorimetry measurement in a patient on day three, where we have a 2,500 kcals a day number, but more, what is the trends? How does the VO2 trends over time? What does the VO2, VCO2 trends over time? When you add on, next to the metabolic cards, also imaging, right now we have the ability to use ultrasound on the bedside, point-of-care ultrasound. But we can measuring muscle mass. We can measuring body composition. We can measuring the amount of glycogen in the muscle. We can measuring um, the amount of fat infiltration inside the muscle, just using non-invasive point-of-care portable ultrasound devices.
0: Which I think next episode we're gonna have to dive into that big yeah. time because that is complete news to me, but incredibly interesting, and I think it will be very valuable. It sounds like the future of critical care.
1: No oh, absolutely I think one of the as what Paul my always says and I think I think agree on that one the stethoscope for the for the physicians is right now than the ultrasound probe for the dietitians because what dietitians struggle with right now and even also PTs I think struggle with is how do I define my outcomes? I know the mobilization is, is is good, but how good is it? when is it good? when is it not good? when should I change it and the same with nutrition we don't have any specifics where we can on a day-by-day basis, on the bedside, non-invasive, assess a patient, and based on those assessments, tailor our specific needs for this patient.
0: Right, we titrate all sorts of things in the ICU, exactly. except for nutrition. I mean, we titrate their rate, That's but not it. always dependent on exactly what they specifically need. Exactly. Well, next episode, we we're going di- to dive into how we can better utilize nutritionists, physical therapists, and our upcoming technology.
1: Absolutely. Ron. Hey,
0: thank you it's so good. much for bringing in The muscles into our multi organ picture. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I see you.
0: Thanks so much. Talk to you next time.
1: Next time.
0: If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801 784 0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.